ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, e kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Operation Trojan Horse. A gripping study of the collateral damage caused by government decision-making in war and an expertly researched study of government duplicity, said the Australian of Stephen Davis's book, Operation Trojan Horse. In 1990, British Airways Flight 149 departed Heathrow Airport destined for Kuala Lumpur. Despite intelligence of an imminent invasion, it stopped to refuel in Kuwait as Iraqi troops amassed on the border, delivering the 400 passengers and crew into the hands of Saddam Hussein to be used as human shields. How this came to pass is allegedly a tale of deniable intelligence operations with dramatic consequences for the civilians caught up in it and no one held accountable. Crafted with the cooperation of survivors and input from a senior intelligence source, Davis, an award-winning journalist and editor for outlets including The Independent on Sunday, The Sunday Times and The New Statesman, brings the story to light in conversation with Moana Maniapoto. A tēnā koutou katoa, nau mai haru mai ki tēnei uh, wahi tino atahua, he honoru nui tēnei ki a hau, ki te tūkei mui a koutou, ki te mihi atu ki a koutou, i runga tēnei whenua a Ngāti Whātua. Uh, ki ngā kaiwhakahaere, tēnā koutou mō koutou mahi, uh, ko tongariro te maunga, ko taupo te moana, ko tūwhare tō te iwi, ko te hehu te tangata, ko moana Maniapoto a hau. Um, thank you for joining us today. This is very flash. I said to Stephen, gosh, I hope someone turns up, eh? Because I picked him. Um, so uh, uh, this is my first time at the uh, Writers' Festival. Um, and I, I think I popped up last year with some musicians. I don't know if Stephen's up with the play on singing and dancing, but we won't. Can't do either. Okay, that's all good. You stick a stay in your lane. Um, so what I'm thinking that we'll do is... Um, I'll host a conversation, and I'll try, they gave me notes that said, don't hog it, basically. I'm ad-libbing here um, with, with Stephen, and then I will invite you to ask some questions at the end. May I just let you know that in my role as um, presenter for Te with Moana on Whakata Māori, I did interview the new Speaker of the House, and he gave me strict instructions on how to be firm but fair. <laughs> Questions, not statements. You may be ejected, okay? Okay, kawhai. We're all on the same wavelength. We're all on the same wavelength. Now, I started my, I'll, I'll just, anyone put your hands up if you've read this book? Okay, and the rest of you at the end, you're gonna put your I'm hands up when it. I say That's go good. and buy it. So at the start of the year, as I was floating in my relations pool, um, I was reading this book, and it felt very middle class of me reading this book, which was extremely traumatic. I could not put it down, and that's nothing to do with the water. It was hugely engaging. I thought to myself, how could this happen, and how would I cope if I was in this situation? And how on earth did someone pull all this together in a book? Um, so, just to give you a heads up, on August the 2nd, 1990, a British Airways 747 landed in Kuwait as Saddam Hussein was invading the country. The plane was captured and the passengers and the crew became, there's 400 of them, became, uh, were held for several months and across numerous locations. Given the geopolitics of the time, which Stephen will remind us of, it was quite clear that this was a, a dangerous thing to do and that there had been a military build-up. So why was it the plane was allowed to land in a country that was about to become a war zone? In his book, Operation Trojan Horse, released last year, this New Zealand author and journalist claims there has been a cover-up by both the British and American governments. So please put your hands together and welcome to the festival, journalist Stephen Davis. Thank you. 
1990 seems a long time ago. Could you just remind us, Stephen, of the geopolitics around then? A long time ago, indeed. One of the things when I researched the story, which was interesting, of course, no mobile phones. Um, the communications were completely different. Um, but here's the situation. Uh, in 1990, Saddam Hussein started making speeches in which he declared constantly that he was going to invade Kuwait. The dispute, as inevitably, was about oil. There's a big oil field which is half in Kuwait and half in Iraq, and he said the Kuwaitis are stealing our oil, so we're going to invade. And he ramped up his rhetoric consistently to the extent that the CIA, about a week before in July, issued a formal warning that there was going to be an invasion. It seems that in a now infamous conversation with the US ambassador when she spoke to Saddam, she may have given him the impression that the Americans weren't much bothered either way. They considered it a local dispute, you know, Kuwait, not very strategic. And at that point, he decided to invade. And so on the morning that the flight was due to take off, despite the fact that the BBC and others were reporting that a huge amount of Iraqi troops had gathered on the border, ready to invade, British Airways Flight 149 took off and flew to Kuwait as if nothing was happening. Can I just ask, because who makes the call about when a, an airline, a airline should um, land its planes in a, in a place where there could be a major tension happening? Who makes that call? That's a very good question. Theoretically, it's British Airways senior management. And indeed, uh, at the airport that morning, they had a security briefing. And the British Airways uh, chief purser, Clive Earthy, told his crew, um, it's not likely that British Airways will fly us to Kuwait. We're bound to be diverted. British Airways makes that decision before the plane takes off. When the plane is in the air, and this applies to all of your flights, the captain has exclusive control. The captain can make a decision at any time on the grounds of imminent danger to divert or not land the plane. So imminent danger wasn't a consideration? Well, this is a, a, the, one of the uh, um, things about this book is a history of mis and disinformation and lies told about what happened and when it happened. Um, and also uh, an example of the fact that spin doctors in the West and the others elsewhere know that the first version of the story that you get out is often the one that's believed. So the plane took off and it flew on and about three hours flying time from Kuwait, the invasion started. The captain flew on and landed the plane. As he landed the plane, uh, tanks had already surrounded the airport. About two days afterwards, the, the most enormous fuss about the plane being there, the British Foreign Office issued the statement and they said, look, don't worry, yes, it was a bit of a cock-up, excuse my language. Sorry, mm, I'm, mm. am I making... Yeah, I think you are. Right. Someone's probably listening to you from England or somewhere. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, just yeah, look that on there. So... Can you just ah, tell yeah. me, um, you right there? I think that's okay. Yeah. Stop clunking. So, okay, just imagine this. You're flying, you're flying home. In fact, there was a New Zealand couple on this plane. You're flying home from somewhere and you know that people would be aware that there was tension happening and things were ramping up, but they're putting their trust in the airline and in the governments, I guess. And they, and they land here. So you have, um, you have passengers, you have crew who land in Kuwait. And what happens? What do they say? Can they describe, do they describe to you what happened when they landed? Absolutely, yes. First off, during, when they checked in and uh, many of them thought, OK, I've heard the news, so we're not going to Kuwait. Uh, it was only a refueling stop. They were refueling in Kuwait and going on to Madras in India and uh, Kuala Lumpur. 
Um, during the flight, again, most of them thought, yeah, we're not going to land in Kuwait because all this news is happening. And then when they came in and the announcement was they had landed in Kuwait, they were pretty shocked. Now, these were in the days when, when the plane was refueled, they let you sit on the plane in the stopover. Some of the passengers got off. Some of the passengers slept. And then all of a sudden, a young woman called Jennifer Chappell, 12 years old at the time, looked out the window and saw two fast-moving objects zipping around the airport and saw things fall from the fast-moving objects and then tremendous explosions. The whole plane shook. There were 55,000 uh, gallons of aviation fuel on board. And then they realised they were in deep trouble. They ran hastily evacuated from the plane. Several of them noticed they looked up at the arrivals board and everything had been cancelled or diverted except for their flight. They looked at the Kuwaiti guards at the airport and they all had holsters but no weapons. They'd already been disarmed. And shortly afterwards, they saw Iraqi tanks, and shortly after that, they were in captivity. And my point, and I think it's a very important point about disinformation and misinformation, is the very first statement from the British Foreign Office said, don't worry, these people are having a short holiday. They're sipping uh, cocktails by the pool in the sunshine at luxury hotels, and it's all going to be okay. And by the way, that was true for two or three days. At the embassy? Uh, at, at hotels. Oh, yeah. The, the Iraqis didn't know what to do with them. The Iraqis were deeply shocked that a plane had turned up at the airport. But then later on, they wor worked out what to do with them, which was to use them as human shields and put them in captivity. So these poor people who had set out on this flight found themselves as hostages of Saddam Hussein. So can you just describe some of the people? I mean, some of them would be very similar to those of us in this room. Absolutely. Uh, a memorable couple who I interviewed, uh, Henry and Daphne Halkyard from Walkworth, um, both uh, sadly now deceased. I don't think either of them ever recovered from their ordeal. Um, they had New Zealand and British passports, and they decided at the last minute, this is one of those twists of fate, to travel on their British passport, not their New Zealand passport which meant when Saddam drew up a list of the hostages he'd most like to have, of course, the Americans and the Brits were at the top. New Zealanders didn't really figure into it. It's interesting, Stephen, because there was a point made in your book about someone had said, OK, um, the Americans and the, uh, and the British, you go over there, then the Indians and the Malaysians, you're all over there. So this lady from England's thinking, oh, well, we'll be, we'll, we'll be OK. But they were in the wrong group, weren't yeah, they? absolutely. So there was this very sinister thing where the Iraqis came into the hotel and said to everybody, gather in the lobby, get your passports, and you had to stand in a line. And echoes of some other terrible events, the Iraqi would say, go left, go right, this is your group. And you're quite right. The, uh, the Brits, I mean, and the, one of the stewardesses admitted, I guess in her slight arrogance, thought, I'm British, I'm okay. Uh, all those um, Malaysians, Pakistanis and Indians over there, they're probably going to be mistreated. Mm. Um, in fact, it was the exact opposite. Saddam worked out, um, basically, if a country was opposing his takeover from Kuwait, they would be near the top of the list of people to be mistreated. So Americans and British at the start. The poor French got a shock. There were a lot of French passengers on board. And early on, Mitterrand didn't join the grand coalition against Saddam Hussein. So they thought they were going to be okay, and then one day they listened to the radio and Mitterrand said, we're joining the coalition, and then suddenly they became the bad guys. Yeah. Um, but, um, yes, it was a very interesting, eye-opening experience, and the poor Halkyards, if they had kept the New Zealand passports, would have been okay. Instead, they undertook four months of hellish captivity, which changed their lives for the worst. There were children... Yes, um, there were a number of children on board. Jennifer Chappell, age 12, who I have interviewed multiple times and um, who sent me an email only just recently saying, Stephen, I've read your book and I cried on every page and I couldn't sleep for nights afterwards. As I was reading this email, of course, I'm thinking, oh, what have I done? 
but in the end, she said, I found it a transformative experience. She's 12 years old. She ends up in captivity. She has to undergo this experience where they're driven out in the desert in the middle of the night and got out, and the soldiers take their guns out, and they all thought they were going to be shot. She's had a terrible life. Uh, I can say this because she's now talked to me about it. Suicide attempts, never held down a proper job, never um, been able to trust anybody. 31 years of absolute hell because she was 12 years old and happened to be on this plane. Um, a 17-year-old German called Gregor Schatz, again, his life was essentially ruined uh, by this experience. And one of the things that made me so angry when I started investigating this and hearing these stories was that these people's plight was virtually completely unknown to everybody, mm. um, which is unbelievable. So, so they're, they're taken off the plane, and then what happens? Where do they go? So, so they ended up in these hotels. They actually in the Hilton and the, the Marriott and so forth. But then the Iraqis got their act together, and so they scattered them at 70 sites around Iraq and Kuwait that Saddam thought the Allies might bomb during the war that was going to come up. They were called human shields. That's where the phrase comes from, human shields. So they were scattered in these sites in terrible conditions. One group were in the sluice gates under a dam in a metal case. They suffered um, near starvation conditions. There were sexual assaults of both men and women. There were constant beatings, psychological threats torture, of being executed, starvations, uh, you know, starvation. And the worst thing for some of them was they could listen to the BBC World Service. And as I said, Saddam put them at all these places thinking, okay, the Allies won't bomb here. And they, they listened to a BBC World Service interview with Margaret Thatcher, the UK Prime Minister, who, by the way, is directly responsible for the sending the plane there, as you'll see from the book. And Thatcher was asked, are the fact that your fellow citizens and other allies at these uh, nuclear and biological facilities, because ironically enough, that was when Saddam actually had weapons of mass destruction programs, at these dams and at these medical headquarters, medical quarters, military quarters, Will it stop you bombing them? And Thatcher said on BBC, oh, no, 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 we must, we must go ahead and, and defeat Saddam. So you can imagine all of these people sitting in their camps all over the place thinking, well, if the Iraqis don't kill us, our own side is going to kill us. So one of the challenges for the passengers, and this is the thing that got me really thinking, was whether to attempt to escape or not. That was a huge, conflicting kind of experience for many of them. Indeed, and they got some odd advice from the various embassies. The British embassy told everybody initially to stay put. Ironically enough, you could have hijacked or got in a car for the first 48 hours and just driven out across the border into Saudi. Because as I said, the Iraqis hadn't really got their act together. So, yes, they stayed put and ended up in captivity. And then um, there were these terrible moments of, as you said, decision-making. Uh, a man called Charlie, who was a steward, who I interviewed several times, he met an Iraqi officer in Kuwait who befriended him and said, I like you, Charlie. I hope we meet again. And when he was in a camp in northern Kuwait, the guy turned up, the officer, and said, I'm so pleased to see you. And he raped him every day, day after day. And so Charlie found himself going up and looking at the fence and thinking, I'm going to run and climb the fence and have them shoot me because I really can't cope with this anymore. All sorts of agonizing, stressful decisions like this. There were three French lads who got so depressed they felt they had to do something. So bizarrely, they found where the camp commander's car was and they set fire to it. And the Brits had to come along and talk the camp commander out of having them shot. The three 
students were depressed because they had lost their places at university because they were stuck in this camp. And they couldn't think of escaping, but they thought of an alternative. Let's set fire to the camp commandant's car. So all of these people, by the way, suffered the most tremendous um, deprivations. Many of them still have PTSD. Uh, only a few months ago for my podcast, I was interviewing one of them, a remarkable man called Barry Manners, and halfway through the interview, he started to cough, and then he said, oh, I think I'm bleeding. And I said, okay, we'll stop, Barry, what's happening? And he, yeah, he just broke down. And when he was interviewed by the BBC, he did a breakfast interview and then was rushed to hospital straight afterwards. And this is 30 years after the event. So, Stephen, the people are all placed in 70 different locations. Um, some, some of them would be small groups. Um, there'd be crew and passengers. And no, well, obviously there was no cell phones. They would have taken them anyway. So um, what was the... Uh, did, were they aware of what was going on around them in terms of Kuwait? And because, yeah... Yeah, they had the World Service. The, the irony of this was that two sets of people listened to the World Service in these camps. One were the hostages and one were the Iraqi guards who also didn't know what was going on. Of course, they lived in a society where information is suppressed. It's not like Saddam Hussein handed out press releases. So they both used to listen into the World Service to, um, to get some information on what Bush was saying and what Thatcher was saying, the gathering of troops for the desert storm, the current war. Then this sinister thing happened where Saddam Hussein decided to show the world uh, how well he was treating people. Mm. So he had this thing called Guest News, which they used to broadcast, and Saddam would turn up and he would go around smiling and shaking hands. And on the book cover is the Of the hostages. Yes. yes, the infamous shot of him patting a little boy's head, which is on the cover of the book. What you don't know during that meeting where he patted the little boy's head is he then walked over as the cameras followed him to talk to another little boy. And as he leaned over, the other little boy kicked him in the shins <laughs> quite hard. And Saddam stood up and said, who are the parents of this boy? You can imagine the parents thinking, little Johnny, what the hell have you done? You know, Luckily enough, he didn't take the parents out to be shot. But that was a huge decision for the hostages, whether to take part in these staged events where they felt they could at least meet some, have some communication with the outside world, or whether to refuse to take part because it was propaganda. And if you refuse to take part, some of them simply had their rations cut. Yeah. I, I'd imagine that Saddam Hussein wasn't someone that you could really say no no to. No. Indeed. Yeah. Were there any examples of people speaking to the cameras or anything and giving little coded messages? Uh, a couple of them talked about, um, just like you see in the movies, really, talked about uh, people on holidays back home that didn't exist, aunties. Uh, you know, I'd like to say hello to Auntie Jane, who didn't exist. So that was, um, that was part of it. A lot of them were um, trying to tell the Western forces what their locations were, because at some stage, Western special forces developed uh, some kind of massive operation to rescue these people. It turned out to be impossible because there were 70 locations mm. and it was too much. But all of these people had day-by-day life-changing decisions to make, even on simple things like who to talk to, who to trust, um, what to do, how far do you go to get yourself fed. Clive Earthy, the chief purser, and his colleagues were so hungry that he bribed a guard to get them food. And the guard said, all right, I'll do it. And two days later, he came back with a leg, which turned out to be the leg of a giraffe from the Kuwait Zoo. Um, but they ate it. 
they had nothing else to eat. And as Clive said to me, pretty soon after that, we were eyeing up the local cat who used to come around. Um, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. You, why, um, just in terms of escaping, who escaped and why? Who did you talk to? There was a brilliant, uh, early on, there was a brilliant uh, German called uh, Otto Lange who um, was a rally car driver. And he had an escape route and he used to get in a vehicle with others and he used to drive at high speed across the desert, relying on the fact that he would always outrun the Iraqis. And he did every single time. Every single time he drove faster than them and he got away. But other key decisions, one of the most important decisions, and I later found out why, all of the crew and passengers were held in these places. And at one stage, the captain of British Airways 149, Richard Brunyate, decided to escape with some of his crew without telling the passengers. Many of them who felt completely betrayed, by the way, you know, Captain... Ship goes down. Ship. Yep. When I asked Brunyate about his escape, and this is significant when hopefully you'll read some of the secrets behind the story, I said, why did you escape, Richard? And he said, well, I was afraid of being um, interrogated by the Iraqis. And then he gave me some long-winded story about how his dad used to be a businessman in Baghdad and upset Saddam Hussein, and that's why he was afraid of being captured. And I said, okay, Richard, so you ended up with the Kuwaiti resistance. How did you find the Kuwaiti resistance? Oh, yes. And there were moments <coughs> when you, you talk to people as a journalist where you just know they're lying to you. And Richard said, oh, I went out and I, I knocked on a few doors and I found them. Because that's what you'd do, eh? Uh, yes. You'd like, in you, a, you're, in a, you're in the middle of that. In an city. occupied city with uh, Iraqi secret police and soldiers everywhere. You wander around and knock on, and the Kuwaiti resistance, of course, answers, oh, yes, Richard, you're at the right door, come in. This is the Kuwaiti resistance door. Um, as it turned out, <coughs> he had other motives and, 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 and some very serious links to British intelligence, which um, uh, you can find out when you read the book. But the, the people left behind, that was one of the worst moments for them. Regardless of what happened, British Airways had landed them in this mess. They thought British Airways would look after them. And suddenly, and actually some of his crew got left behind because they couldn't take everybody. So suddenly they felt abandoned. Mm. And that was one of their low moments. And then some of them realise nobody's coming to help us. Mm. Not special forces, not our own governments, not British Airways. No one's coming to help us. We're alone. We're in places where nobody knows where we are. Our future is completely murky. And a number of them suffered, you know, as you might imagine, quite serious depression. Gregor Schatz's German friend, who had <coughs> been an optimist, Mr. Cheerful, stopped talking. I mean, literally stopped talking. Gregor couldn't get him to say a sentence day after day. He just sat there in his bunk, brooding. Because that's despair. You've been abandoned. You've been abandoned by everybody who you thought you could trust. And, and an airline who you thought you could trust flew you into the war zone when no, every other plane that day, that night, was turned away. So, Stephen, there were some interesting passengers on board that weren't held hostage. Can you tell us about them? As the plane sat on the ground at Heathrow Airport, there was a two-hour delay. All of the passengers were already on board. And at one stage, uh, the front door opened and an extra group got on board and they walked from the front to the back. And they were a group of young men, crew cuts, muscular and tanned, was described to me. Many of the passengers looked at them and thought, these are soldiers. When the plane landed, Clive Earthy, the purser, opened the door and there was a uniformed British officer there to greet him. Clive was shocked. And the officer said, I'm here to get your last minute passengers. And Clive thought he was talking to a Kuwaiti VIP who was also on board in first class. But the officer said, no, I need the guys at the back. 
and you're late and we better hurry. So Clive called them and they walked from the back of the plane to the front of the plane. So you should know this ironically because 31 years later the British government still denies this ever happened. The funny thing is half the plane saw them get on, half the plane saw them get off. And when there, there were people waiting for them to, with their luggage and they vanished. None of them were taken hostage. None of the passengers ever saw them again. And that is the secret of British Airways Flight 149. Part and, of it, anyway. And that is the reason for the title. Yes, I'm, I'm a, um, been a investigative reporter all my life and I'm a student of the way history is distorted. So as I said, when these people came back before the war started and they'd be at a dinner party or something and somebody would say to them, oh, what, what happened to you? And oh, we were a human shield. And the almost instant reaction was, oh, nothing much happened to you, did it? Uh, you all got back, it was all okay. Don't think anybody died. And so not only were they landed in a war zone as part of a secret mission, but they were denied even the public acknowledgement of the terrible things that had happened to them because it was so successfully covered up. This is extraordinarily, I think it must be the only example in history of governments actively covering up war crimes committed against their own citizens. The government commissioned this report into what happened to the human shields, the people of 149 and lots of other people. And they produced the report a year after the event, and then it was promptly suppressed and called an official secret act. I read the report last December. There were 2,000 documented war crimes against UK citizens and one and a half thousand war crimes against citizens of other countries, including New Zealanders, 15 other countries, including torture and all the other things that I mentioned. So ask yourself why the government, and nobody's ever prosecuted or held accountable for these crimes, why would a government commission a report into war crimes against its own citizens and then declare it a secret for 30 years? Well, the answer is simple. If you had published that report a year after the event, everybody would have started asking, well, hold on a second, how did that plane end up there in the first place? Why did the plane land? Why did the plane land when all other flights were turned away? And who were the, guy, the buff guys that got on, got off, and no one ever saw them again? Indeed. So rather than have these questions asked, they chose not to prosecute these appalling war crimes against these innocent people, which, again, there are several parts of my investigation which now has been going on, Moana, since I first had a call about this in August of 1990, so half my life, more or less. Maybe I'm just slow. Um, but there were several times when I have had to restrain myself bec from becoming too angry because I had to stay on task and rationally report what was happening. But so much of what has happened to these people and still has happened to them makes me angry. For instance, life expectancy. Everybody in the cockpit died in their 50s. Many of the passengers died before their time because, of course, you un have this stressful, life-changing event and it affects your health long-term. Can I just say, um, one of the other really disturbing issues that you raised in the book was a visit by the British and US governments to the King of Saudi Arabia. I was just weirdly by the pool um, where I was reading this book. I was with a man, this sounds a bit dodgy when you say that, but um, he, he worked in Saudi Arabia um, and we were talking about the kind of the landscape, the political landscape, but I found that situation so incredibly distressing because of the consequences and repercussion of that visit. Can you, can you explain what happened? So this is not a, just a story about how a group of individuals were affected. This is a story about major geopolitical consequences. So these people who landed on the plane, um, my publisher always tells me off for revealing too much, but just let me tell you that 
that, that one of their jobs was to keep an eye on the movements of the Iraqi troops in Kuwait for one simple reason. Are, is he going to go on to invade Saudi Arabia? If he goes on to invade Saudi Arabia, he's then in control of 40% of the world's oil, and you don't want that. So the, these people were keeping the Iraqi troops under surveillance in Kuwait to determine whether they're going to invade Saudi Arabia. They quickly determined they were absolutely not. Mm. They were digging defensive positions. There was no evidence whatsoever, and nor has there ever been any evidence that Saddam Hussein was going to invade Saudi Arabia. But meanwhile, Dick Cheney and Norman Schwarzkopf fly to Saudi Arabia. They meet the king. They say to the king, you should be worried because Saddam might invade you. We have a solution to your problem. The solution is allow us to bring troops onto your soil. And by the way, they expected the king to say no, and much to their shock, he said yes. After he had a little conversation with his brother. Yes. And so US troops were allowed on Saudi soil. At the same time, the West was getting intelligence that Saddam Hussein had no intention of invading Saudi. What were the consequences of this? Well, just before Cheney and Schwarzkopf arrived, a very rich Saudi had gone to the Saudi royals, and he said, I will raise an army of holy warriors for you to kick Saddam out of Kuwait. We'll do the job. Let Saudis and Muslims do the job. Please don't, under any circumstances, allow American troops on our sacred soil, the soil of Mecca and Medina. When this individual found out that, in fact, American troops were on the way, he swore revenge on the West. And Osama bin Laden was a man of his word. Worse than that, when I started following this decision, I came across this amazing speech, not very well reported, by a true expert in the field. I mean, I'm a, just a journalist and investigative reporter, but this man was Richard Clark who was one of the world's top counterintelligence officials and worked in the Clinton administration. Richard Clark said, if this decision had not been made, American troops on Saudi soil, there would have been no 9-11. And therefore, there would have been no Afghanistan. And therefore, there would have been no Iraqi wars, failed states, millions of deaths, untold misery. Now, this is a serious man who knows what he's talking about. Other people might disagree of the long-term consequences. But the simple truth is that they made a decision which is the exact opposite of the intelligence that they were receiving. And I think there's a very good argument to be made that bin Laden just would have gone on with doing what he was doing, and he certainly wouldn't have sworn revenge on the West, because that is the thing that made him tipped him over the edge was having American troops on Saudi soil. I mean, there's so much to this book, um, and that's a biggie, that is a huge biggie. Um, how, how, so four months, these people are all held as hostages. How was it that they were released? What happened? What was the catalyst? Well, first off, uh, there was, at one stage, women were released and children and not uh, the men. And um, husbands and wives had to make incredibly difficult emotional decisions about whether to stay or go. For instance, uh, I remember interviewing Daphne Halkyard and Henry Halkyard about Daphne's decision to stay with Henry and not be released. And as we were sitting there, Henry started crying and said he was always grateful for that decision years later. So there were these incredibly emotional decisions. Many of the... Um, the women and children went home. The men were held in captivity and their, their situation got markedly worse. Their living conditions, their, the way they were treated. If you were held in a camp, by the way, run by the Ba'athists, who were the real hardliners, it was particularly bad for the men. Uh, one night in a camp in Basra, the Ba'athists turned up in the middle of the night and they got everybody out, out, out get into this coach, drove them out into the middle of the desert in the dark, get out, get out, here's some sand, here's some shovels, start digging a hole. So they all dug a hole with men lined up behind them. 
crouched down in front of the hole. Of course, at that point, they all thought they were about to be shot. Um, there was a click, and the soldiers fell about laughing. It was simply a form of psychological torture, which they had decided to do. Anyway, the conditions got worse and worse, and in the meanwhile, the Allied war buildup was going on. A desert storm, a huge gathering of troops everywhere. And here's the weird thing, and I think this more speaks to quite a bit of the stuff that Saddam Hussein did in his life, nobody really understands. Because the war planners' principal concern at one stage was hundreds of hostages are going to be killed once we go into Kuwait to kick the Iraqis out. They were really, really worried about it. Saddam Hussein literally had this, as it were, aces in his hand. And one day, for no apparent reason that anybody has ever been able to discover, in December, he, some people believe it was a last minute effort to keep the UN happy and have some kind of peace deal where he'd get to keep part of Kuwait, a gesture showing what a benevolent dictator he was. But one day he just got on the radio and said, okay, they can go home now. So they did. They went on planes, there was this tremendously emotional reunions back in their homes. And, and, and the, the timing of that, by the way, is partially to blame for the way the story wasn't covered well. The problem with we as journalists is we're always going on to the next big thing. And I'm as guilty as every, anybody. I mean, I was on The Independent on Sunday. We'd set up a war desk to cover the coming war. And I was really interested in what happened to these hostages, but essentially forgot about them after they came home for about three months because, you know, Desert Storm came along and there was a war. Um, so that's really what happened. As they I just said, got, nobody really knows. Yeah, they just got let go. Now, what happened to the buff dudes? <laughs> I can tell you we're interested in this, Sarah. Uh, <laughs> oh, it wasn't good. To do with your swimming pool, and you know, it wasn't good for them either. No, um, the they had a mixed experience. Two of them, uh, as they were driving out of Kuwait City, were immediately arrested by the Iraqis. They had bags with them, which had weapons in them. Now, bear in mind that the Iraqis who occupied Kuwait, there were three kinds. There were the Mukarabat, who were the secret police, who were real hardliners. <clears throat> there were a Republican Guard, who were real professionals, elite unit, had the best tanks and weapons. Most of the rest of them were conscripts, poorly paid, poorly clothed, um, uh, not very disciplined. And most of them didn't really know why they were there. Luckily for these two guys, the, um, the stop that they got picked up on was some conscripts. So they sat there being interviewed by the conscripts officer with their bags on the floor in front of them. We're just tourists. We arrived on 149. We're trying to get to our hotel. And after about 30 minutes, the guy said, all right, we'll escort you. You're prisoners now. We'll take you. The entire time, never once looked in their backs. Because if he'd had, of course, they would have been taken to the Mukarabat and they would have been tortured. So two of them ended up like that. Two of them ended up with the most remarkable um, event. Um, as I say in the book, this was a secret high-powered operation approved at the highest levels of government involving top soldiers and intelligence officers and nearly came a cropper because of some bad cheese. So two of them who were in southern uh -huh. Kuwait, when they opened their rations, they had a, 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 a ration uh, kit which was out of date by several years. <laughs> a bizarre, isn't it? I mean, they had high-tech weapons and things. Jeez. And, and the junior one of them, the, 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 one of my contacts, John, said to his mate, don't eat that stuff. And his mate said, I love cheese and I'm hungry. So he ate the cheese. About 24 hours later, he was suffering from food sickness so bad, they were in hiding observing the Iraqis, that um, John realized he was going to die unless he was rescued. 
So they then proceeded to be an extraordinary operation where they got a US Special Forces helicopter to fly into Kuwait in the night. And this guy carried his sick mate across the desert to Awari to get rescued. Um, but the, all of the rest of the team, their operations were successful in terms of getting back real-time intelligence. And it's really interesting to talk to some of them after all these years. They say, we're very sorry about what happened to the passengers and crew, and that wasn't intended to happen, but we feel that our job, our mission, was a success. So they've kind of got a mixed mm. feelings about it. One of the reasons the plane got stuck on the ground, by the way, was a complete miscalculation of how long the Kuwaitis would defend their country for. Uh, the mission briefers said, we reckon the Kuwaitis will hold out for between three and five days. So if you think about it, the plane had a chance to land and everybody get off and the team get off before the invasion happened. Instead of holding out for three to five days, the Kuwaitis collapsed in about three and a half hours. Not least because the Emir of Kuwait and his entire family oh, yeah. took off for Saudi Arabia in a long convoy of Mercedes and Land Rovers um, without leaving any instructions for the defense of their country. So the intelligence here was that one got rescued, two spent the war as POWs, but luckily enough passed themselves off as and yes, some of the others had some interesting adventures, which you'll have to read the book yeah. to. So I'm going to take some questions shortly, um, but you must buy this book, read it. I don't think I'll ever get on an international flight again <laughs> without having a plan B. But you know, you, you kind of do rely on the captain, like the weather's bad, fasten your seatbelts, there's a war, we won't go there. And it was terribly revealing. I know it's been a 30-year journey for you, and I wonder how difficult it was for you to actually um, speak to these people, hear their stories, and get them on record. How hard yeah. was that? Well, first off, the British government and the, New and the American government have been very determined the story um, doesn't come out. 15 years ago, I wrote a version of this book, and the UK and US publishers were kind enough to send me messages saying, Stephen, this is one of the best non-fiction books we've ever read. We're so looking forward to publishing your book, and then mysteriously never got published. And mysteriously, there was a BBC drama in development, and it got denoticed, and I had a friend call me up saying they're listening to your phones, and reading your emails. In terms of the people, you, you've got to be very careful. You're a journalist in pursuit of a story, which is a legitimate story which you think the public has a right to know. But the very act of talking to people about what happened to them can and does trigger their PTSD. So part of the process of investigation was often a long period of dialogue between me and the people I was going to talk to, developing a relationship of trust. And, and then eventually I'd say to them, look, I know you have doubts. Uh, if you talk to Clive Earthy or Jennifer Chappell or Gregor Schatz or the, the Saloon family in Georgia, you can ask them about me, what my interview style is. So my interview style, contrary to what you might see in some of the terrible TV drama descriptions of journalists, um, is to that it's not about me, it's about them, to be gentle and patient and simply listen to what people have to say. But even then, as I said, even now after all this time, I still have to be careful. Charlie, the individual who suffered that horror, He's had two occasions in the last three years where he's had a breakdown. He's trying to write his own book and I was trying to help him. And he emailed me to say, I'm sorry, I can't ever talk about this anymore. And the only correct response to that is, of course, Charlie. He, by the way, was so traumatized that he decided he could no longer be a British citizen and went to live in Luxembourg and changed his name and nationality. That's how badly he was affected by this ordeal. He's been in touch recently since the book came out. But yes, you have, to be, you have to be ultra careful. 
And then part of, the, part of the good thing about being an investigative reporter is being able to take the time. So I'm not roaring around, knocking on somebody's door who suffered some terrible tragedy and say, I've got five minutes and two questions I need for the six o'clock news. Hmm. I don't really like that form of journalism. How and does now, it... you know, I, I've had all these lovely messages on the hmm. book and podcast from people um, who were there, who I hadn't interviewed, saying, hmm. talk to me as well. How does it impact on you personally? Um, I, I've been angry a number of times. Um, I, I write the reality check column for the listener, which has me engage with some of the lunatic fringe and misinformation and disinformation. And I, I do have to be careful about my mental health because it's easy to be depressed. When the book was didn't come out the first time, I, I said to my wife, I'm giving up. I'm not only giving up trying to do this book, I'm giving up journalism. I've gone as far as I can, I battled as hard as I can, and I just can't go through this anymore. You know, there's nothing, I've got nothing, I've not got a book. These people's stories haven't been told. Lucky enough for me, my wife, bless her, said, you need to keep going. And good for her, so I did. But yeah, you gotta, the, you know, as a journalist, I mean, we're often accused of being a bit cynical. The best kind of journalists are really about the stories of the people they're talking to. And so you've gotta be completely attuned to their moods and their ways and their desires and to keep that relationship of trust. Because mm. if, if they think they won't, can't trust you, they won't tell you the real story. Thank you, Stephen. I'd like to invite anyone who has a question for Stephen. Um, we've got microphones. There's one there, just over there. Does anyone have a question? Oh, kia ora. Oh, there we go. Ooh, there we go. There um, we go. What was the... Um, did the captain have knowledge of the secret operation beforehand? Um, Yes, um, but I won't, uh, not to be funny about it, but I won't tell you all of the details, uh, um, but yes, he had a particular role um, which meant he was able to find the Kuwaiti resistance and he knew what was happening. And you'll see the role is revealed in, in the book. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you, Stephen, for your investigative reporting. So very important always, but especially now. Um, and I acknowledge your role as an inspirational um, educator as well. Please keep that critical mind going in our youth. My question for you is, what do you think the effect of your publication of this book will be? Last December, immediately after this happened, Mrs. Thatcher made a statement to the House of Commons you know, and Prime Ministers speaking to the House of Commons are supposed to sort of tell the truth, although in the days of now Boris Johnson's kind of destroyed that. <laughs> Thatcher told the House of Commons, 149 landed, the passengers got off, the crew got off, the new crew got on, the plane was refueled. All of this happened before the invasion started. And then she turned to her back benches, you can see her on television, before the invasion started. Well, the book came out in August, and in December, I was woken up in the middle of the night, weirdly, by the British Foreign Office, and said in an email, Mr. Davis, we know you followed this story. There's going to be an important statement to Parliament by Lynn Truss, the Foreign Secretary, um, who will soon be Prime Minister. Truss stood up and said, basically, you know all that stuff we've been telling you for 31 years is not true. We knew about the invasion and news was circulated while the plane was still in the air. So to that extent, in terms of an official reaction, I feel we've had a breakthrough. They've admitted a substantial lie. They still won't talk about who was on the plane. And the, the rescue mission that I described in southern Kuwait still officially doesn't exist. And even when you say to them, well, actually, you know what? I've interviewed the captain of the US warship, 
and the helicopter crew who told me about it. So why don't you own up to it? No, no, it never happened. We searched the official records, doesn't exist. So the lie is still going on, but I feel like at least there's a breakthrough. The hostages, by the way, as a result of the Foreign Secretary's statement, have a team of excellent lawyers who feel that they could surpass the statute of limitations and may have a chance of suing the government. So this is going to go because, on and on. Before our next question, because compensation was offered to different pa passengers from different governments. You talked about someone being offered the most offensive oh, compensation. Sh shocking. So the, the Americans sued and got quite a lot of money and the French sued and went through three sets of court and got quite a lot of money. British Airways fought the British passengers all the way to the House of Lords to not pay them any compensation and won. At the same time, by the way, British Airways got a huge insurance payout for the destruction of its plane. The Halkyards in New Zealand got a letter from Lord King, the BA chairman, and with a thing saying, sorry about your missing luggage. <laughs> Can you believe it? Yep. Please. You've told us about the fact that the pilot in command knew what was going to go on, and you've obviously interviewed him. Were you able to have access to the discourse that would have taken place between him and the various control areas after it was known that Kuwait had been, that the invasion had taken place and that the airport was effectively under Iraqi control. So did, did he try and resist, or because he knew, did he ignore suggestions that he divert? There was never a suggestion that he diverted. Very interestingly, there were two people at Heathrow with tremendous knowledge about what happened. Uh, one was a woman called Carol Miles who checked in the team of muscular young men, as Moana keeps oh, calling them. Oh, please. And, um, and, and noticed that they were using a Ministry of Defence account. Carol um, died a few years later. When I attempted to talk to her, she had been left her British Airways job and had been given a job, guessed where? At the Ministry of Defence, by complete coincidence. The controller at Heathrow, Mike Longdon, who was in conversation with Bunyate the whole time and who had been briefed on this, his colleague said he was so guilt-ridden he never recovered and he died of a heart attack three months later. Thank you for your um, question. I could take one more question, sorry. Um, oh, sorry, sorry. Hello, um, I, I think I might have been working at the same time in London as you. I'm a, I was with the BBC, um, but I'd left to have a baby at that time and when this happened. Um, my question is, and obviously it won't go out of this room if you answer it, we, we know you can't reveal your sources, but did, did your source, that, ring, that phone call that you got, was, was that somebody from within MOD or MI6? Or? Intelligence services. Ah. I have over the years done a lot of reporting on intelligence services and special forces. I have the distinction, I think, of the British government three times attempting to uh, sue or injunct me in New Zealand over stories, and I'm, I'm 3-0 against them, so <laughs> good. Um, but the thing with intelligence and special forces is that you've, if, you, if you get one to trust you, they'll often introduce you to one more person, huh. and then you develop some actual contacts. Yeah. Thank you. One last question, my apologies. Thank you. Uh, my question is, in reflecting on the nature of the characteristics of the different passengers and the way they responded to the trauma, did you have any insight into any particular characteristic or a personal belief or religion or, or you know, um, karmic feelings of ones that were more successful? Fascinating question. There was a, a remarkable, I'm not religious, but I was struck by my set of interviews with a remarkable couple called the Saloons from Georgia who were Mormons and certainly lent on their faith to get through. There would seem to be no common denominator though between those who handled it robustly and those who didn't, other than to note and, and this has happened, I, I'm just, I'm doing another investigation into the sinking of the ferry Estonia and who survived and who didn't. Other than to note that often those who were most cheerful 
and spent the early weeks trying to cheer everybody else up into the deepest declines when they realized this was going to go on and on. That was quite an interesting oh. phenomenon. Gosh. Um, Stephen, thank you so much for your, um, not just your insights and your, um, your amazing research, but for your humanity and bringing these stories to light. I've, it's just the most amazing work that you can be very proud of. Um, and thank you for joining us today. I was bordering on brilliant idea of mine to bring you in here. <laughs> and I'd like everybody. Th I'd like to thank everybody for joining us today. <laughs> and uh, and and also to remind you that um, you can purchase this great book outside and meet Stephen and get him to do the little signatures. So catch you later on in the day. I've got you, you all under surveillance. So I'll be <laughs> noting who tries to leave without buying the book. Thank you. <laughs> Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.